was an old song that said, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. He thought about you and me. Now, part of us wants to think about that in holy individualistic terms. Let's not think about that just in individualistic terms. Let's think about the awe and the wonder that we were on his mind, but also that we as part of this whole world were on his mind. We among everybody. As the Lord spoken to you this morning, you might go to him and say, God, I hear you. And respond to what he's spoken to you already. If you're still looking for something that you want to receive from the Lord, you might go to him and say, Lord, please meet me here. I can give you a moment to pray and then I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for how you've already been moving this morning, speaking to us. Lord, uh, whether that was correction, encouragement, challenge, comfort, consolation, we receive what you've you've already given. Uh, Lord, I pray and I ask that you would continue to move to speak. Uh, Lord, uh, might we have ears Unworthy, Lord. Uh, God, I pray and I ask that you would just please uh, hear this prayer. Uh, Meet us and equip us so that we could live as your disciples, disciples of your son Jesus. In this world, uh, equip us so that we could be able to make disciples of Jesus. I pray these things in Christ's mighty, resurrected name. Amen. Uh, Over the last few years, uh, our church has undergone somewhat of a transformation of uh, kind of uh, who we are. Uh, You can trace this all the way back to um, COVID, March 2020, um, whenever uh, things really begin to change. And what I mean by that is the programs that we offer as a church are different. The people who comprise this church are different. And that's not only because there's there's new people here and and there's some people who were here who are no no longer here, but it's also because we are different people collectively, right? Uh, You've you've experienced 
change and life change and, uh, and, and seasons uh, have changed in your life. Your, your kids might have been, you know, you know, one age and now they're another age and you're dealing with uh, that, that, that difference. You might have been, um, you know, in, in a job and, and, and working your nine to five and now you're semi-retired and now you're moving on to, 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 to some other situations in life. We are different collectively as a people. We are different. And, and, and we, we did not, as a ministry, we tried not to go into COVID like the sky is falling. Um, and in fact, one of my good friends, he, 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 he has pressed me on this a number of times. He continues to say, uh, you know, I can't believe the church has just uh, rolled over whenever the government said uh, that y'all couldn't meet anymore. And I was like, listen, if I was in another state where that seemed to be the case, I might feel different about that. But I live in, in the Republic of Texas, right? And, and here it was, we were, we were shut down as much as anybody else was. It wasn't a discriminatory uh, it didn't seem towards churches in particular. So I didn't take this and go, oh, they're telling us not to meet. And guess what? If Even if our government told us not to meet and if it was discriminatory, we, we would take a stand. But we wouldn't have to take a stand the way that everybody always thinks that you have to take a stand. We could have been a little bit creative about things, too. You know, We didn't have to go, well, we're going to still meet. And that means that we gather thousands of people in a building. We would have figured out some other way to go about this. But, um, but regardless. Regardless of the fact is there are people who, who went into COVID like, man, the sky is falling. What's going to happen? And, and we didn't really do that. In fact, we took May of 2020. If you, can, if you were here, you might remember this. We, we took this as an opportunity to say life always brings you these seasons where you are in orientation and you go to disorientation and you come out to a new orientation. It happens throughout our lives. Brother Ron, I still have the book that I borrowed from you. I'd never even fully finished reading it. And uh, you told me to get it back to you. And that was probably eight years ago. But the book is called Transitions. I pulled it off the shelf this last week. Listen, I'm going to buy you five new copies, all right? So you can pass them out. But that book discusses that you're always in transition. Part, part of what it discusses is that, is that we have grief and we have loss and we have you know, a death, as it were, whenever you go through transition. Uh, I remember a, a pastor, a, a former pastor, his name was Rob Bell. He was real popular for a long time um, and uh, controversy uh, because some people don't, uh, don't, you know, don't think that he was super orthodox or whatever, but, uh, but uh, I gained and gleaned a lot from him, just like I gained and gleaned a lot from my Episcopalian brother that I mentioned last week and, uh, and some Reformed guys that I, that, that, that I read and, and, and people all across the board. I hate, I hate, I hate that we sit there and we, we, we want to you know, be the gatekeepers of who can bring us truth. But one of the things that he described in a book one time was uh, that last day of first grade. Y'all remember your last day of first grade? Can you at least remember feeling that sense of sorrow? And he makes the point, it's because you knew that it was never going to be the same. You were never going to be in that same class. You were never going to be with that teacher again. With those same students again. So maybe it wasn't first grade. But maybe there's another grade. 
for another season. You've experienced these transitions in life. So, as we've kind of come through all that, uh, pastorally I'm finding, hey, we're kind of a new people. We're a new, we're in a new area, era of our ministry. So where do we go from here? What programs do we want to offer? What things do we want to be doing as a ministry? I can tell you uh, uh, there comes down to be a lot of pressure. I can feel pressure sometimes to go, I have to have all the answers. Not only that, but uh, we look around the city and we see all the churches doing all the things. And sometimes there can be pressure. Oh, they're doing this, that, and the other. We need to be doing this, that, and the other. Um, And so, what I've come to uh, is this determination. Uh, For one, we are who we are right now. What we want to do is we want to spend a season where we, where we consider who we are and identify uh, the opportunities that we currently have for discipleship, for worship, for fellowship, for service. And what we want to do is instead of going like, man, we need to be doing all the things, one thing that's on my heart is I, I really want us to do, be doing, I don't think we should be doing all the things for one. I believe church should be simple. I don't believe church should be a burden. That's philosophical. Um, And what I've found is that people who come to our church uh, in these last few years have have found reprieve because there was a lot of burden on them. Because churches in general feel that pressure that we have to be doing all the things. So, my heart is that we identify the opportunities that we have, and we are able to fully develop them. I don't think that we should be doing, you know, as much as I think church should be simple, I think it should be done well. That there's opportunities within the few opportunities that we have. You know, we meet for Sunday morning worship. Uh, We offer children's church for discipleship of our children. There's ways that we can develop these things. We don't have to be adding more and more and more layers to the onion, as it were. But also, I think about this, is if we are to add things, uh, who should drive that initiative? Uh, So we want to think about these things over the next a little bit. I don't know how long it's going to take us. Um, you know, I, I say we're going to do this together. And what I want us to be able to do is come equipped to uh, uh, for you to think about, uh, you know, your place in Friendswood Baptist Church. What you want out of Friendswood Baptist Church. What you want to offer Friendswood Baptist Church. Maybe we should start with that question uh, first. And. Um, And we'll have some lively moments of discussion 
dialogue. Uh, there could even be disagreement. Did y'all know there might be disagreement in some debate? If you don't think there's going to be disagreement in debate, I just want y'all to know that uh, I've decided that this, uh, that this carpet is no longer good for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to rip it up and we're going to polish the floors. All in agreement, say aye. Anybody in opposed? Right? So if you don't think there's going to be disagreement, hold on to your horses. Right? Uh, but here's what I want to do today. Today, what I want us to do is I want to set out some guiding principles for us. And we might add to these along the way, but these are a few guiding principles that I think are really necessary for us. They're things that I've, I can tell you personally, I've had to like work through with the Lord over this last, last little bit uh, in, my, in my life pastorally as I've been kind of processing where we're at as a ministry, what we need to be doing, all those kinds of things. Um, and, and these guiding principles are going to come out of the first few chapters of Acts. And, and so... Well, what, what I want to do right now is I'll just tell you kind of on, on the front end where we're going to get to with those guiding principles. Um, and uh, if I can, if I wrote them all down. All right, here we go. Yes. Uh, so uh, the f four guiding principles, two are positive and two are negative. Um, and, 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 and I'll show you how we're going to get them in a minute. But uh, first of all, everything that we do is discipleship driven. Discipleship driven. Um, uh, everything that we do is congregationally championed, championed from the congregation. Uh, number three, uh, competition is condemnation. Uh, number four, uh, nothing is for notoriety. All right. So how are we going to get there? Well, in the first few chapters of Acts, if you've ever uh, endeavored upon this wonderful uh, history of the early church, the first few chapters of Acts give us two moments of these two summary statements about what life was like in the church at that time. Now, a lot of times people will read this and say this was the ideal way uh, that the church was, and, and this is how the church was always supposed to be. And there, there may be a point to that, but, but I think what Acts is really trying to reveal to us is it, it, it was a living history. And for a period of time, this is how the church was, and actually things started to change in the church. And actually, if you see, if you think about reading Acts and you go, man, this is the way it always supposed to be, and this is how it was all, you know, this, this was the ideal romanticized era, well, then you, you miss a large part of Acts because Acts is about how the church never stays actually in one location and it doesn't just stay stagnant. The church is always on the move throughout the book of Acts. I mean, very practically, it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And whenever you do that, you're changing culture, you're changing, you're, you're ch changing, um, you know, the people that you're ministering to and, 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 and the freedoms and the values and, and, and everything that everybody's coming to the table with, all that changes. And so there's going to be a little bit of transition in, 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 in how all these churches meet and what it might look like for these churches to meet. And so, and so very, very like surface level reading of Acts is this idea that the church is on the move. Now, I say that to say this. Sometimes we look at Acts 
and people romanticize and idealize, or the early church romanticized and idealized, this is the way the church is supposed to be. But we don't only do that with the church in Acts, do we? Sometimes we do that with the church of our childhood. All right. Well, whenever I was growing up, we did things this way. And we romanticized and idealized. Well, we sang these songs. Uh, we had these programs. We did this bus ministry. And so one of the things that I want us to see as we set out looking at this first and foremost is Acts is giving us the living history of the church at that time. And so, in Acts chapter number 2, it gives us a summary statement about how things were in the church at that time. And you can turn in your Bibles or you can look up on the screen and we're going to begin in Acts chapter 2, verse number 41. And, uh, you know, if you can't read that, sorry. Um, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And these continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and they had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods. They parted them to all men as every man had need. And they... Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they'd eat their meat with gladness, singleness of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So uh, we've all, you're probably all really familiar with this. So I just went and uh, I, I picked out some qualities, some characteristics, some qualities that we could see out of that early summary of the church. We have discipleship going on there. They continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Um, they have community going on. They're meeting. Um, they're communing with one another. Not only this idea of meeting and joining with one another, but they're, they're, they're communally minded. They're taking care of one another. They're seeing to the needs of one another. We see there that the apostles are proclaiming the gospel, they have affirming signs with their, their proclamation of the gospel. We see that generosity is a big part of the, uh, the early church movement there, that they, uh, they, they were selling off um, you know, uh, land holdings that they had, and they were bringing the prophets um, so that they could provide for the needs of others. They were doing this all with joyfulness and unity. Uh, you might have some other characteristics that you saw jump out of there. These were mine uh, that, I, that I saw jump out of there. And, uh, and so that's what we have in Acts chapter number 2. Now, if you skip ahead to Acts chapter number 4, there's another summary statement. Um, just before we read the text together, let's set the scene here. Between the time of Acts chapter 2 and the end of Acts chapter number 4, um, the church has been doing this, and then there's a story. There's a story about something that happened. One day, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray, and they saw this man who was lame, and he had been lame from, his, from, from birth. And he asked for some money. He was, he was like a, a you know, panhandler on the side of the street that, uh, that asked for some money. And Peter looked at him and he said, I don't have any money for you. 
but I do have something for you. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the man not only stood up and walked, he wasn't like a baby giraffe and, you know, kind of like wobbly. He, he leapt up to his feet and he began running and he began leaping and he began joyfully going, what this amazing thing that happened. And, and people took notice and people saw and people were like amazed and wondered. And they said, what happened? And they're looking at Peter and John like they did something. And Peter says, it's not about us. Let me tell you what happened. Remember Jesus of Nazareth, the one who, who was crucified, he was committed to, to death by, by, by not only our religious leaders, but by, by the Roman governing officials as well. Well, guess what? He is risen and he is at the right hand of the Father and he has sent the Holy Spirit as a, as a sign, as a signal in this world that says that he is on the throne. And everything that you saw happen, happened in the, under the authority and by the power of Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin, the religious leading authorities, political authorities in there in Jerusalem, they, they scooped him up, they arrested them, and they brought him in for questioning. And they told them, you're no longer allowed to proclaim that Jesus, the one who was crucified, rose on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he has sent his spirit as an affirmation, as an uh, authorization, if you will, or a legitimization of this reality that none of us can see. And they went away and they went back to their company and they gathered with everybody and they prayed and they prayed for boldness and they prayed that the Lord's spirit would continue to work and continue to show up and, and, and show everybody that, hey, he, that, this, that this message is true. And it says that the whole place shook. And when you read that in Acts, you're going, oh my goodness, amazing things are about to happen. What's interesting is right after that is there's another summary statement. And this summary statement not only summarizes the church, but it also serves as a prologue to another couple of stories of what happens in the church and if you know these stories you know that after that moment where everything was powerful and mighty after this moment where it seemed like they were experiencing some some victory and after the summary where it says hey things are kind of going as they were things begin to change some problems creep into the church. Two big, two big issues that happen. One happens at the Acts chapter number five, and one happens in Acts chapter number six. Acts chapter number five is the duplicity of Ananias and Sapphira. And Acts chapter number six is the discrimination against the Hellenist. In between that is this summary statement. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Uh, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. He said, nothing that I have is my own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them. They brought the prices of the things that were sold 
They laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. This is a beautiful, beautiful moment in the church. Uh, I went through and brought out some uh, qualities, some characteristics of this that we see. A lot of them we see in, in the Acts chapter number 2. There's unity there. They're all together. There's generosity there. They're, 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 they're selling off their land holdings so that they can provide for the needs of those who lacked among them. So that nobody lacked among them. Uh, you see again that the, the apostles are proclaiming the gospel with affirming signs. Uh, again, you see this community, community mindset. It's uh, not just uh, like, hey, we're all getting together and we're experiencing warm fuzzies together. But we are, we are coming together and we're taking care of one another. We're seeing to the needs of one another. And so, uh, the story doesn't stop there. Uh, the story continues on. Uh, but before the story continues on, I want to give you our two positive guiding principles. The first one is that uh, everything they do is discipleship driven. Now, whenever I say discipleship driven, what I mean is this. There, and we see this in chapter 2, and we can see it in chapter 4. And this is how I would define it or describe it. Their intentional relational gathering around the teachings of Jesus and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, however you want to express it. This shaped them towards empathy, compassion, mercy, generosity. Practically, it meant that they took of their own to provide for the goods and needs of their entire community. Whenever I say discipleship driven, we see that it is about us and mutual discipleship, seeing and seizing upon the opportunities to generously provide for one another, whether that's practical needs and or spiritual needs. What I don't mean is they did all this for a church growth strategy. And I'm not against carte blanche against church growth strategies. But I am convicted and I am convinced uh, that what we see as a driving force in a really healthy expression of the church is people coming together, learning more about Jesus, and becoming more like Jesus toward one another and toward those who are not even part of their community. They're not doing it to get numbers, they're doing it to take care of each other. To see to the needs of one another. Again, they do this for people's physical needs. 
they see it as their part of their responsibility to take care of their brother and their sister. The other positive guideline from this is this is congregationally driven. What are the apostles and prophets, what are the apostles doing at this time? The apostles are proclaiming the gospel with the affirming signs. But then it says everybody who makes up the congregation, because they've been shaped to look like Jesus and to act like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to breathe air in like Jesus breathes air in. They see that they can take care of one another. That they can help build up one another. They can encourage one another. Practically, they can encourage one another. Emotionally, they can care for one another. Right? What I would like to say is this, is we can't look at it and we, we should not go, oh, no, 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 they were just providing for physical needs. No, I think that right there, the fact that they're providing for physical needs, that's the hardest thing for you and me to do for one another, isn't it? What that tells us is there's so much depth to what they are providing for one another. That tells me that, that, that hey, if I'm willing to go sell off land holdings for the sake of somebody who is in my community getting a meal for the day, I deeply care for that individual. I've come into deep relationship with that person that I don't just care about their physical needs, right? We, we, we tend to do that. Well, you just care about people's physical needs. Well, if you can care about somebody's physical needs, look at our nation. We we are, we are completely, completely at odds with one another about taking care of people's physical needs and whose responsibility that is. So I don't think it's just taking care of their physical needs. I think that's showing us how deeply they cared for one another, how holistically they cared for one another. Congregationally championed. We get to learn about one of these guys in just a moment. His name was Joseph, or uh, or, or the correct pronouncement. I can't even say pronouncement, so I'm not even going to go there anymore. It's it's oasis or... or, uh, Okay, it's Joseph, all right? It's Joseph, that's what it is. But he gets renamed Barnabas, the son of consolation. He is the one who first walks with Paul after Paul gets to Jerusalem and he uh, helps Paul. But we get to learn of one of these guys, but these people took it upon themselves to see the needs of one another. Recently, and by recently, I mean last week, a pastor named Mike Glenn, he oversees multiple congregations throughout Middle Tennessee, and these congregations comprise about 10,000 people. And last week, Mike Glenn wrote this. He says, if any ministry is going to work, this is what they learned, it will be because a lay person feels a burden and a calling from God to do something. 
Now, I do not like the term layperson, but we all understand what we mean, don't we? In our church, he says, we've learned not to do anything until the ministry has a lay champion. One of the things that comes up for me as I consider metrics of the church and metrics of me as a pastor, how do I know that I'm serving our congregation well? And that's a question that rests on my heart all lot of the time. One of the things for me right now in particular is how well this congregation would function if I were not here. This is not me discrediting God's ability to provide the work of the Holy Spirit or any of those factors. This is me practically thinking and considering that I believe that one of the goals for me as a pastor should be and is that were tomorrow I to be off the face of this planet in the presence of Jesus awaiting resurrection were that to be the case outside of grief and y'all would grieve deeply outside of putting on sackcloth and ashes tearing your clothes wailing in the streets Friendswood Baptist Church would be a healthy, mature church that could carry on. That's a burden that I have as a pastor. Now, I understand this. Because I'm the pastor that I am and have been for a number of years, there's a lot of things that happen, that operate in this ministry that none of y'all know how to do. And that's not anybody's fault, but this guy right here. And so whenever I think about the metrics of what success is, success is not that we have 500 people in here on a Sunday morning. 500 is an arbitrary number. Because if we have 500 people, but, uh, but tomorrow I'm gone and then the church doesn't function, that's not healthy. I don't care if we have 10 people in here. If we can't continue on. And part of that I see as a drive to encourage us that what we're going to do as a church has to be championed from we the people of the church congregation and why are we going to do this because we are being shaped and formed to be more like Jesus to take care of one another to meet the needs of one another I, I, I will venture on even further to say this a church growth strategy as clever and as creative and as like uh, fruitful Genuinely fruitful as they can be. A church growth strategy always will involve this as well. That champions have to rise up and say, this is what I have to offer. 
This is what I see. Here's how I can provide for the needs of my brothers and my sisters. Now, I said we also have two negative guiding principles. That is competition is condemnation and nothing is for notoriety. This little summary, prologue, introduces to us two concepts that happen in the church. People are selling their land holdings, bringing the prophets to the apostles, laying them at their feet so that they can be distributed widely to the congregation. And so you have this, you have this twofold thing. People are doing this work where they are selling their stuff and there is distribution that needs to be made. And in chapter number five, we meet two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell their land holdings. And they bring them to the apostles' feet so that they can be distributed. <coughs> Excuse me. In chapter number six, we meet uh, this, this problem that there is discrimination Against the Hellenists. The Hellenists are not getting equal distribution of the goods. And so the summary serves as a prologue of this. And in these two problems, there are some things that I see. First of all, I wonder. We don't get much out of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What happened, why it happened. They aren't even given much opportunity to answer if you know the story. But I wonder why Ananias and Sapphira felt that they needed to lie about what they were given to the church. And whenever I think about it, humanly speaking, I think Ananias and Sapphira heard about the story of a guy named Joseph, who everybody called Barnabas because he was just a son of comfort and consolation. And they thought, man, I want to be like that. And whenever I think about churches and what churches do and why churches do what they do, I know so many times churches do what they do because did you hear what the church down the street did? Did you see how many people that they had show up? Did you catch how this program is, is captivating the hearts and minds? Do y'all remember when the Purpose Driven Life came out? I have nothing against it. But did y'all remember that every church for a season was doing a series, The Purpose Driven Life? It was going to be the thing. Churches are that way, aren't we? If our church isn't doing VBS this year, but another church is doing VBS, is the sky going to fall? Or should we be doing it because they're doing it? And what's more, what's more is not just that we compare ourselves, but we think that we're in competition. And this is a hard thing for us to get over. It's hard because a lot of us think that we are the gatekeepers of theology. Well, our church does it right, and we have the right philosophy, and we have the right doctrine, and we have the right principles, and we have the right practices. And here's what I want to say is, baloney. We do it a little bit differently because we read and interpret scripture a little bit differently, and you can be convicted about that, and you can be convinced about it. 
And there are things that are genuinely things that we need to stand in opposition to. But there's a lot of things that we are meeting in different buildings for that have no regard of the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus would put it. Can I tell you, as a pastor, it is hard to see a new building go up and everybody flock to the new building and they have all the resources and they have all the, all the amenities and not to feel like, man, it's hard not to celebrate that. But the Lord goes, you need to celebrate that, stupid. He doesn't call me stupid. He says, son. But I, 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 I do that, right? He says, hey, son, why are you not celebrating that? That's beautiful. And you've told people forever that you're about that. So be about that. I'm sure it's hard for you whenever you leave our church sometimes or you drive by one of those churches and you see their parking lots full on Wednesday night. And you go, man, we haven't had a full parking lot on Wednesday night in ever. Not forever, in ever. So, I want y'all to repeat with me. We are. We are not. We are not in competition. We are not in competition. We are not in competition. Praise God for all the good work that's going on to the... Glory of God in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Should we want less of that contained here at this? And, hey, guess what? If we were in competition, guess what? We're losing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, like, if you're going to put the metrics set numbers, like, right, like, don't. Let's not get proud about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I know, God, that's what we have to cling to, like, the last shall be first, man, you know. <laughs> oh, so silly. Here's the other thing that I think maybe, and, and we see that competition spirit again. It's not just in the Ananias, it's the fire story. We see it in the Hellenist versus the, uh, the Hellenist widows versus the uh, Hebrew widows. And y'all should understand there's discrimination going on here because uh, the Hellenists uh, spoke Greek, the Hebrews spoke Aramaic, the Hellenists had adopted Greek culture, the Hebrews had stayed pure to the Orthodox Jewish culture. So there was literal discrimination going on in the church. We don't have the, that's not challenged in scripture. We can't go, well, the apostles said that's not really happening. No, and how they fixed it was they brought up a bunch of Hellenist deacons to distribute. They said, okay, well, if the Hebrew uh, deacons or, or the Hebrew guys are not distributing widely to the Hellenist um, uh, widows, then let's get some Hellenist or Greek deacons to care for them. Um. So it's not challenged, but what we see there is in that discriminatory way, that partiality, there is this spirit you can get of competition, competitive rivalry going on there. The last thing that we see is that notoriety, nothing is for notoriety. Why would Ananias and Sapphira want to, want to lie about what they brought to be distributed? 
Why would they want to lie about that? Because, oh my goodness, look at Ananias and Sapphira. Praise be Ananias and Sapphira. So a guiding principle for us is nothing that we bring to the table of our congregation should be for any one of us to get notoriety. And guess what? We, we don't have to get much notoriety to get a big head. It is entirely... Uh, It is entirely uh, marvelous, and the, and the meaning being, I marvel at this, how little notoriety people need to get so proud. And guess what? I am one of them. So let's not think that only the people who get up in front of the church and play music, they're the ones who might get that way or the pastor might get that way. There are people who will go and they will, you know, oh, I was just cleaning the church the other day. Yeah, I know, I know, I'm special. And I don't think any of our cleaning ladies do that, but y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So nothing is for notoriety, but this doesn't just play for individuals in our church. This should also play for Friendswood Baptist Church. We aren't doing it so that our name gets known. Whose name should be getting known? Whose way should be getting known? It plays right into that competitive spirit. But it even goes beyond that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we uh, we gave we, our kids put together some bags to give to our bus, our, our transportation department, F, FISD, and it was asked of me, should we have the communications from FISD come? Take pictures of you while you distribute. And that is tempting, isn't it? Because all FISD gets to see what Friendswood Baptist Church did. Now we're caring for people. And in our society where you shamelessly self-promote every aspect of your life, it doesn't seem out of the ordinary. But in my reading, when Jesus was talking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't talking to a bunch of disparate individuals. He was talking to his gathered, assembled, collective body of believers, his church, his ecclesia. And he said to them, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And so it's a conviction that we have, a guiding principle that we have, that we aren't doing this stuff so we are known individually or so that we are known as a church. I trust this. If it's to be known, let others make it known. And let's not forget this. If we do it to be known, and I don't care if you do this as an individual or as a church, it applies both ways. If you do it to be known, that's all you get. 
That's the reward, and it's a cheap reward, and it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And you're chasing after it every breath you take because that's what you need. So my brothers and my sisters, as we gather to identify the opportunities that we have, that we want to seize upon, as it were, here's what I encourage y'all with is... Everything that we do is driven by discipleship. That means that it's because we've been shaped and formed to look like Jesus and because we want others to see Jesus and we want others to be shaped and formed like Jesus. And so if it's something that we're going to do, it's not just, well, we think that this would be, you know, neat. It's like, no, 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 no. It will because it will shape people like Jesus. And, and, and just so y'all know, this does not mean that everything that we do has to have a message with it, right? I am so for us just getting together and having a pizza party without me having to go, well, let me sit y'all down and, and preach to y'all. <laughs> Devotion, right? We can just get together and have a pizza party. No youth department has ever done that, but that is able to happen, right? You can just get together and fellowship. Just get together and have a good time. Just get together to know one another so that you can actually care about one another. That's enough. So whenever I say that, don't get this pious idea in your mind. Discipleship-driven, congregationally championed. Anything that we do that's going to be good and effective and successful, we are going to have to do it for each other and for the sake of others. Right? We have to champion this. Nothing we do is for competition because competition is always condemned. And if you read Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira's story, you see condemnation comes pretty hard in that one. And nothing we do is for notoriety, not for ourselves, and not even for Franklin Baptist Church. And with that, I say amen. Would you bow with me?